Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 169. I hope that you enjoyed episode 168, which was a quick wander and a tribute to one of our most sacred of American holidays, Memorial Day. It's only 16 minutes long, so if you have not already listened in and you are able to find just a couple of minutes of extra time today, please do take a minute to listen to it before the long weekend ends. Yes, it's a wander, but I think it's a short one worth taking. There is one more programming note that I would like to mention to you, one that I did have an intention of saying more about in earlier episodes, but given the pace of things lately, I deferred a discussion on it until now. Recently, I spent some time with Matt Crumpton. Matt is a lawyer who has his own JFK podcast entitled Solving JFK. It's a terrific podcast, well-organized, and Matt is highly articulate, highly analytical, and gets right to the point. It's a no-nonsense discussion about the facts, and I like to think of it as the kind of presentation you might hear from a highly skilled courtroom lawyer. And that makes sense because, as I said, Matt is a lawyer. Recently, Matt invited me to join him on his show, Solving JFK, and I've had the good fortune to participate on two of his separate recap and rebuttal episodes. What are these episodes? Well, occasionally, as Matt finishes up coverage of a topic, he pauses to produce an episode which recaps the materials most recently covered, and he does so in a succinct way related to that particular topic, and he includes and addresses listener comments that are potential rebuttals to his conclusions or statements. Matt chose to include me on his first two recap and rebuttal episodes. It's been gratifying to do the shows with Matt, and I hope you'll check his podcast out and most certainly include those two episodes along with others when you get a chance, because it's well worth listening to. Now, going the other way, we are going to have Matt on our podcast at some point as well. As you know, I don't do too many shows that are interactive with other individuals, but Matt certainly would be a pleasure to have on our podcast with us here on JFK, The Enduring Secret, and he's agreed to do so. So stay tuned for that. Like JFK, The Enduring Secret, Solving JFK is available for you to listen to or to download on most popular podcast outlets. Now, let's turn to the topic of the day. What's next on the list here at JFK, The Enduring Secret? Well, Once again, we are not ready to get back to the regular sequence of things. (laughs) Imagine that. So you might consider these next several episodes to be bonus episodes. I'm okay with that. In fact, I'm going to label them as such. But as always, I'll tell you that these are really worth listening to, even though they are bonus episodes. Years ago, I reread many of the books that we are now using as reference for the podcast series. I ran into Joan Mellon on YouTube, the author of A Farewell to Justice. Joan has a very inviting style when she presents information in person, and it makes it easy to listen to and to follow the narrative. 
And the real treat is when you finally buy her book on the Kennedy assassination and begin reading it. That's where the real experience comes from. The experience is nearly like a blind man slipping on a set of readers. Eureka! And finally, I can see again. In all seriousness, the book does bring much clarity to many murky subjects that tie into Garrison's New Orleans investigation of the murder conspiracy. She is a pro-Garrison writer, as I've said before, and as I've explained in prior episodes, you must keep that in mind when you read the book. I find her writings on the JFK investigation fascinating, illuminating, and enlightening, and Joan has meticulously scoured Louisiana and interviewed over 1,000 witnesses for this book. What has spawned this particular wander, you might ask, (laughs) that we are going on today? Well, that's simple. Recently, I came across a radio show on YouTube, a rather long radio show, that Joan Mellon did as part of the promotion for her book. In the show, you can hear Mellon tell much of the story of her investigative work in her own words. That alone is worth the price of admission. She accomplished what most authors only dream about. As I said, it will make you want to buy the book. So that way you can read the whole story. But the conversation in today's audio of the radio show is so extended and so rich and so supplemental that it's worth it to take a wander and to listen to it. All of it. It's long and I've decided to break it up into three or four smaller sized episodes. All considered a wander or a bonus episode, but trust me, well worth it. Joan doesn't appear on many shows when you Google her on the internet, and this one show is particularly relevant to all of us and pertinent. Aside from the fact that it's Joan Mellon talking about her own investigative experience in making the book, what makes this interview even more interesting is that it was conducted on a radio show called Taking Aim which was broadcast from WBAI Radio in Brooklyn, New York. A popular and current definition of WBAI is that it is a non-commercial, listener-supported radio station. Programming is a mixture of political news, talk and opinion from a left-leaning, liberal, or progressive viewpoint, along with some eclectic music. The station is currently owned by the Pacifica Foundation, with studios located in Brooklyn, and a transmitter located at four times square. Pacifica Foundation is an American nonprofit organization that owns five independently operated, non-commercial, listener-supported radio stations known for their progressive or liberal political orientation. Its national headquarters adjoins station KPFK in Los Angeles, California. Pacifica Foundation also operates the Pacifica Network, a program service supplying over 180 affiliated stations with various programs, primarily news and public affairs. It was the first public radio network in the United States, and it's the world's oldest listener-funded radio network. Programs such as Democracy Now! and Free Speech Radio News have been some of its most popular productions. The radio show Taking Aim began about 20 years ago, and it ran for the better part of a decade before it was discontinued. Beginning in 2002, Ralph Schoenman worked with documentary filmmaker Maya Schoen and provided commentary for radio stations in many parts of the United States and Canada. Schoenman's production of the Taking Aim radio show was billed, in their own words, as an uncompromising, fact-intensive expose of the hidden workings of a capitalist system 
addicted to permanent war. Obviously, a left-leaning broadcast. In about 2009, they moved from broadcasting over WBAI in New York to an internet webcast. Both Ralph and Maya host the radio show that you'll hear on the podcast today. Ralph Schoenman is no garden variety talk show host that you might typically find on a garden variety radio station. He himself was in the thick of things when it comes to the early investigative work done on the JFK assassination. I won't steal his thunder, so just listen carefully in the first few minutes of this first episode. He will do a nice job telling his own story, and you will be quite surprised, I think. Showing man's own history and how it led to his own involvement in the JFK assassination investigation is worth taking a few minutes to explain before we get started with the radio show. Showing man, by most accounts back in the day, would be considered a left-wing activist who is perhaps most famous for his relationship with Bertrand Russell. For those of you who don't know who Bertrand Russell is, let me just take a one-minute wander on him. I'll do that in just a minute, but first let me finish with Schoenman's background. Ralph Schoenman was only 28 at the time of the JFK assassination. He was a personal secretary to Bertrand Russell, and he became general secretary of the Bertrand Russell Peace Foundation. He was involved in a number of projects supported by Russell, including the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, the Committee of 100, and the unofficial War Crimes Tribunal, yes, to try American leaders for their conduct in the Vietnam War. Shortly before his death in 1970, Russell publicly broke with Schoenman. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Now let's turn to Bertrand Russell and how he fits into this story today. Bertrand Russell was a prominent member of the English aristocracy. His grandfather was a former prime minister of England. He was born in 1872 in Wales as the grandson of Lord John Russell, the first Earl of Russell, whom he succeeded to the earldom in 1931. Bertrand Russell would grow up to be one of the most well-known and prominent citizens of the world, making his contributions as a mathematician and branching into philosophy and taking an active role in social reform as well. He would teach at Cambridge, and during that same time frame, in his early years, he would produce some of the most important mathematical works of the 20th century, including Principles of Mathematics, which he published in 1903, and a three-volume treatise called Principia Mathematica, in which he tried to show that the laws of mathematics were derived from the basic axioms of logic, and were not, let's say, voodoo. His mathematical work influenced 20th century symbol logic, set theory in mathematics, and other mathematical topics, and effectively made him world famous in the world of academia. But he wasn't done there. He had some pretty radical views for his day on the social construct of things. His radical views on subjects such as marriage, sex, adultery, and homosexuality made him controversial during most of his life. And that, combined with his social activism, prevented him from really having a traditional academic career. In some ways, that is what pushed him out, out into the public. Eventually, he came to support himself mainly by writing and lecturing around the world. He is the quintessential social critic and one of the more critical areas that he advocated for related to women's rights. 
Some of these views probably came directly from his parents, the Viscount and Viscountess Amberley, because they too were radical for their times. Lord Amberley, his father, consented to his own wife's affair with their children's tutor, the biologist Doug Spaulding. Oh, what a web. Both the Viscount and Viscountess were early advocates of birth control at a time when that was considered scandalous. But of course, given the story that I just told you, that wouldn't be surprising to anyone, would it? Bertrand was a pacifist whose rejection of the First World War took him to jail. But his views changed as Hitler began his aggression, and in a turn of events away from pacifism at that moment, he became an activist who opposed Hitler and then later Stalinism. But peace and pacifism were the core of his being, and he vehemently opposed the U.S. invasion of Vietnam and also nuclear proliferation that was beginning to occur at that time, and he was against racial segregation as well. In the 1960s, he organized European opposition to the Vietnam War, along with Jean-Paul Sartre. He was an accomplished writer. Among his most popular writings were Marriage and Morals, which he published in 1929, A History of Western Philosophy, which he published right at the end of World War II in 1945, and he wrote his own three-volume autobiography, which he finished in 1969, just prior to his death. In 1950, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature for his varied and significant writings, not any one treatise. And it was on one of those rare occasions where an individual was awarded the Nobel Prize in the first year in which they were nominated. So, now let's turn to how Bertrand Russell got tied into assassination research and how Ralph Schoenman got tied into him. Shortly after the JFK assassination, Russell became interested in it, gathering much of his information from Ralph Schoenman himself and Mark Lane. Russell then published his famous dissenting article, 16 Questions on the Assassination. That appeared in September 1964 in an issue of M.S. Arnone's The Minority of One. In that publication, Bertrand Russell credited Mark Lane for much of that information. Although Schoenman was not mentioned in the 16 Questions article, he was surely one of the most influential in what Russell wrote. For this article, Russell was heavily criticized in U.S. and British newspapers, including Time Magazine here at home and The Guardian in the U.K., Bertrand Russell died in 1970, but not before he had publicly severed his association with Ralph Schoenman and privately penned a memorandum on his relationship with him, which was later to appear in his autobiography and which at least partially explained why the split had occurred. Russell's memo went as far as accusing Schoenman of dishonesty in his representation of Russell on certain literary matters and his potential misappropriation of funds while working in one of Russell's foundations. Regardless of the acrimony of the split and the allegations, there was once a meeting of the minds on the many liberal agenda items of the day. Bertrand Russell viewed peace in the world as a core struggle of his life, and he engaged in many meaningful ways to achieve it. He died at age 97, but just three months before he did, he appealed to the Secretary General of the United Nations to support a commission against the war crimes committed by the Americans in Southeast Asia. 
For all his contributions, Russell is defined as one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century. But it was mathematics, according to Russell himself, that was his chief interest and source of happiness. Now, for a little bit more on Schoenman and his tie-in to Bertrand Russell. Schoenman was a New Yorker. He was born in Brooklyn, and he was educated at Princeton University. But it didn't take him long to decide that he wanted to live overseas. And so he headed to Britain in 1958. He was involved in various protest activities during his student days and became active in the Committee for Nuclear Disarmament after arriving in Britain. This was the activity which brought him into contact with Bertrand Russell, and he began to work for Russell beginning in 1960. Bernard Levin, who was probably one of the most famous British journalists of the day, was not a fan of Schoenman's and his growing relationship with Bertrand Russell. He wrote critically of Schoenman's influence on Russell, saying that Schoenman was partly responsible for Russell's virulent anti-Americanism, in contrast to his earlier pronouncements against communism. Russell said of Schoenman, you know, he is a rather rash young man, and I have to restrain him. In 1963, Schoenman participated as Russell's secretary in attempts to mediate a solution for the Sino-Indian border conflict after China declared a ceasefire the previous year. For visiting communist China, the U.S. Embassy in London put Schoenman under a travel restriction, stamping his passport as only valid to return to the U.S. Schoenman was an organizer and a member of the Russell Tribunal, which was an unofficial international war crimes tribunal, which visited North Vietnam and Cambodia in 1966 and 1967. In addition to the group's own camera crews, Schoenman tried to negotiate network television coverage from NBC and CBS for the tribunal's visit to Hanoi, but he was turned down in a dispute over the conditions. The networks charged that they had been asked to pay for the privilege and also felt that the restrictions proposed on them, including submitting footage for censorship, would imperil their objectivity. CBS News President Richard Slant said they are out to prove a point with investigations and they have an axe to grind. Schoenman denied the allegations, of course, that fees or censorship had been requested while noting that the networks would pay to acquire footage from others, as ABC had done to obtain film from one of the tribunal's cameramen. After making these visits, Schoenman argued in a hearing of the tribunal that the U.S. had committed genocide in Vietnam. He argued, it is not possible to drop four million pounds of bombs every day on a country the size of New York and Pennsylvania without exterminating the civilian population. During the course of the tribunal, the U.S. government revoked Schoenman's passport because of unauthorized visits to North Vietnam. In November 1967, he was deported back to the U.S. by Bolivian authorities when he traveled there to attend the trial of Regis Debray, who was an avowed Marxist and associate of Che Guevara. As a result, Schoenman was prevented from attending the tribunal's proceedings in Copenhagen later that month because Danish authorities now refused to allow him to enter without a passport. This led to a sequence in which Schoenman shuttled between several European countries, none of which would admit him before he illegally entered Britain, 
where he remained for about 10 days, until then being deported in June 1968. All of this did not set well with Bertrand Russell, and in December 1969, looking to distance himself from Schoenman and his activities, Russell made a public statement shortly before his own death, stating that he had had no contact with Schoenman. Russell then approved a vote to remove Schoenman from the board of the Bertrand Russell Peace Foundation. Schoenman then founded the National Committee for a Citizens Commission of Inquiry on U.S. War Crimes in Vietnam. The primary objective was to document U.S. war crimes in Vietnam as he saw them. The Commission of Inquiry traveled around the U.S. conducting hearings on alleged atrocities in Vietnam. It goes without saying that Schoenman probably had a lengthy FBI and or CIA file. I know that was a lot of background on Schoen Man and Bertrand Russell, but I'm trying to give you some context as to who exactly is interviewing Joan Mellon today and perhaps have a better understanding of why they were so overwhelmingly supportive of the work that she was doing. Don't get me wrong, their praise of Joan's work was well-deserved regardless of their political persuasion here, but it's important for you as a juror to know in full and fair disclosure for you to understand who actually conducted the interview and what other perspectives and motivations they might harbor. Remember, this whole garrison story is a slog, as I've attempted to explain earlier, and this is but one more layer of the onion. So now, without further ado, let's listen to part one of Joan Mellon's interview by Ralph Schoenman and Maya Schoen, on the Taking Aim radio show, which aired on Tuesday, October 11th, 2005, shortly before the publication of Mellon's book, A Farewell to Justice. And Maya Schoen, coming to you Tuesday, October 11, 2005. We have a remarkable program for you today, a unique opportunity. We have in the studio with us author Joan Mellon. Her book, soon to be released, is A Farewell to Justice, Jim Garrison, JFK's Assassination, and the Case That Should Have Changed History. It will be published by Potomac Books and with the release date in November. Now, Jim Garrison's prosecution of Clay Shaw and his investigation of the JFK assassination was the case that should have changed history. And in fact, Joan Mellon's compelling book and her investigation over seven years will change history. Hi, Joan. Are you there? Hi, Maya. Hello, Joan. Hi, Ralph. Let's start by saying a little bit about who Joan is. Joan Mellon, Temple University professor and author, is well known for her biographies of Lillian Hellman and Dashiell Hammett, Kay Boyle, her film criticism and filmography of Marilyn Monroe and the Battle of Algiers and many Japanese filmmakers and movies, and also 
A biography of Bob Knight, one that is outside the realm of the usual sports biography. Joan is the author of 17 books and countless articles that have appeared in the Baltimore Sun, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and Philadelphia Inquirer. She's been a professor at Temple University, particularly one of the creators of the Creative Writing Program, and in 2004 was awarded the most coveted Great Teacher Award for her outstanding achievement, particularly in the Graduate Writing Program. Ralph? Well, Joan has, as well, Maya, written a very important investigative book called Privilege, which is an investigation of the death of Sasha Bruce, who was the a daughter of David K.E. Bruce, who was the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain and one of the key figures in the OSS, the predecessor of the Central Intelligence Agency. But with respect to A Farewell to Justice, let me say to you that A Farewell to Justice, in my judgment, is far and away the most significant document and investigative work ever to emerge with respect to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And I speak from some experience here. Because I have to say to you, brothers and sisters, that as many of you are aware, my work with Bertrand Russell entailed the formation of the Who Killed Kennedy Committee in early 1964. We brought Mark Lane to London. Rush to Judgment was written in my flat in London. We indeed were engaged in this effort, and I can tell you from experience, and that includes an acquaintance and involvement with Jim Garrison, that nowhere has there appeared a book as devastating in its documentation and exhaustive survey of witnesses and its involvement with the very plug-ugly contract killers, the, the uh, people who were, who were not just involved in discussing the assassination, but in implementing it, the coordinates, these are the people who Joan ferreted out and, and has nailed. I am convinced that for decades this is going to be a benchmark book and its evidence and its documentation and its witnesses uh, studied and the implications are no longer implications it's right there the head of the intelligence services the central intelligence agency and military intelligence are the authors of the execution of the president of the united states over the next three hours we'll be discussing with joan the most remarkable investigation yet joan what was the motivation and why did you begin the reinvestigation of the Jim Garrison inquiry into the John F. Kennedy assassination. Maya, I began writing a biography of Jim Garrison. I was a biographer, and I thought he was an interesting person whom I had known, and I thought I would talk about his handling of the office of the district attorney in Orleans Parish. By the time I was into it for, I don't know, some months, I realized that this was going to be a book about his investigation, a biography of his investigation. And after that, I realized, too, that his investigation went only so far, and it was only after the passage of the JFK Act in 1992 that voluminous documents were issued by the FBI and CIA and became available in the National Archives, and that these documents had much to say about the investigation begun by Jim Garrison in the 1960s. So my book really begins as a biography of Jim Garrison, then becomes a biography of his investigation, and finally is an investigation of my own. And I found witnesses 
whom Garrison knew about, but who never really were forthcoming in their discussions with Garrison and finally revealed what they knew only at the very end when I saw them. In fact, I did the last interview for this book in June of 2005 in Miami because I wasn't satisfied with the explanations for why Bobby Kennedy opposed Jim Garrison's investigation so strongly. We're going to be going more into the particulars of Bobby Kennedy and his interference with the Garrison investigation in the second hour. Uh, But right now, let's look a bit more at what the structure of the Garrison investigation was and how you actually peeled away all the layers and then were able to substantiate what he had found and then went even deeper so that you actually got to the core of the relationships that showed that Oswald was not a lone assassin, that in fact Oswald, Clay Shaw, David Ferry, and many others were involved in the conspiracy to assassinate John F. Kennedy. Joan? Yes, sir. Yes, well, we were... uh, 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 That's a question, I think. But in any event, uh, uh, the question here, I think, has to do with what allowed you to reprise Jim's investigation and to take it to the places where he could not go. How did I do it? In other words, how did I do it? How did you do it? And, of course, you know, a a huge array of data and evidence wasn't available to Jim during his lifetime. But then the actual ferreting out of witnesses and the interviewing of those witnesses and inducing them to come forward and to acknowledge the relationships, the planning of the assassination and its implementation... That is your work. Building on Jim Garrison, though it may be, I have to say that, uh, and I speak here as someone who is experienced in this, I have never seen anything like this. Please expatiate a bit. Okay, Ralph. Well, I was, as you were talking, I was thinking of one particular witness who enabled me to see Lee Harvey Oswald's role and that he was involved with people who were involved with U.S. Customs, for example. And I was driving down the roads of Louisiana searching for anyone who had been involved with Garrison's investigation, who knew Clay Shaw. And I was driving in Bogalusa where I met one of Clay Shaw's friends. And this friend said, he said what he had to say. And then he said, you know, you really should talk to my wife. And his wife came out and said, you know, I had gone to junior high school with Lee Harvey Oswald. And so when he knocked on my door one day and said, does Juan live here? I knew exactly who he was. They'd gone to the same junior high, and she remembered him well. She called him Harvey. And it turned out that her neighbor was a man named Juan Valdez, who later would be the chief suspect in the murder of a doctor named Mary Sherman, who was, we think, was involved with one of Garrison's chief suspects, David Ferry. And so I learned about Oswald's relationship with Juan completely inadvertently. In another example, I got the information about how Oswald, Clay Shaw, and David Ferry traveled together to Clinton and Jackson in a very mysterious way, but with this very association of Oswald with Shaw pointed to the fact that the cover-up of the assassination had begun even before the shooting in Dallas. Well, I traveled across that ferry from St. Francisville over the Mississippi River, terrified because it seemed to me as if that raft were about to sink and you had your car on it. And I drove to Eunice, Louisiana, and I met one of Garrison's investigators named Ann Dishler. And Mrs. Dishler didn't want, when I finally got there, she didn't want to show me her notes because she felt that she had been betrayed by a previous author who wrote a book denying what was actually in the notes, 
which she had seen the notes. And uh, two years later, I found myself driving through a monsoon over the Atchafalaya Swamp back to Mrs. Dishler's house, where she sat with me for days, not only showing me the notebooks, but also discussing each page and all her memories of the, because the, page, the book was in, somewhat in shorthand, very quickly written. And so I learned about that very important trip that Oswald took with Ferry and Shaw up to Clinton and Jackson, where Oswald applied for a job at East, which is the East Louisiana State Hospital at Jackson, and where I later learned, and this Jimmy Garrison never knew, actually through a doctor named Dr. Frank Silva, that Oswald did indeed apply for a job at that hospital. And this was an incident Jim Garrison knew about, but which some people have denied ever happened. But I certainly knew it did happen because Dr. Frank Silver was the medical director of the hospital during the summer of 1963. And he saw Oswald in a very different mode from the Oswald who stood on Canal Street and handed out leaflets uh, supporting Fair Play for Cuba and was supposedly pro-Castro. Because what Oswald did when he was at the East Louisiana State Hospital at Jackson was talk about how he was going to kill Castro. And there I learned that, that Oswald was indeed there and that Oswald somehow believed that he his function was going to be to kill Fidel Castro, not to kill John F. Kennedy. Well, in this regard, I think we need to explain to our listeners just the significance of the placing of Shaw and Lee Harvey Oswald and I believe Guy Bannister together in the same place, conspiring as it were, to position Oswald in certain key respects. But Perhaps we should elucidate, Joan, the Central Intelligence Agency relationship of Clay Shaw and indeed of Oswald and of David Ferry, the key figures that we're discussing here. Okay, well, let's talk about Clay Shaw first. Clay Shaw was the man whom Garrison indicted for participation in the conspiracy to murder John F. Kennedy. And when we look at Clay Shaw's background, what we find is that he rose very rapidly in the Army, although he never actually appeared on the field of battle. And it was clear that he worked with military intelligence during the war, during the Second World War. When he returned to New Orleans, he was from Kentwood, Louisiana, although he wrote on his CIA file, his application or whatever, the, the CIA file says that he was born in New Orleans, and that's what Shaw said when he was arrested. In fact, he was born in a town called Kentwood, and... He came back to New Orleans and immediately joined something called Mississippi Shipping. Well, Mississippi Shipping was a CIA proprietary in New Orleans. And from there, Shaw joined the International Trade Mart, where ultimately he became its managing director. And the International Trade Mart in New Orleans was a CIA project, as were several other such trade marts that were enacted by the CIA. It was particularly important in New Orleans, which was a port and heavily infiltrated by the CIA. Shaw then really was very grateful to the CIA for promoting him. He actually was a high school dropout, never had studied economics, didn't know anything about trade, yet was the managing director of this huge international trade mart. And so I think, and I think Garrison thought, when the CIA called Shaw and asked him to look after Oswald, in the state of Louisiana, Shaw could not help but agree to do it. It's not that Shaw had anything really that he had a desire to murder John F. Kennedy, but rather that he was fulfilling an assignment and a repayment for what the CIA had done for him. You could see some traces of Shaw's relationship with the CIA when one of Garrison's investigators, actually an assistant district attorney named Richard Burns, one day telephoned Clay Shaw at home and he said, is John Shaw there? And Shaw was suspicious and he said, who sent you? 
which is not the sort of thing you would say to someone calling up or whom, whom you don't know who sent you, but Shaw was obviously accustomed to receiving such telephone calls. The key piece of evidence that Garrison developed about Shaw really had to do with a meeting that took place at the home of David Ferry. So I'll say a couple of words about Ferry. Ferry was a disgraced Eastern Airlines pilot, and he was disgraced not because of anything he did politically, but because he committed what in New Orleans at the time were called crimes against nature. And in particular, his involvement with young boys and their running away from home and coming to him and all of this. And David Ferry was a CIA contract pilot who flew missions into Cuba, burning the sugarcane fields, exfiltrating people, infiltrating other people. And around him, he had a group of young boys who had joined something called the Civil Air Patrol which Ferry led, and among those boys was Lee Harvey Oswald. So a relationship existed between Lee Harvey Oswald and David Ferry dating from the 1950s, before Oswald joined the Marines. So now we're coming to the late September, perhaps, of 1963, at a party at David Ferry's house called a gathering. We see Clay Shaw. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald is present during that evening, only he's called Leon, which he was on several occasions in this story. And they're discussing the assassination of President Kennedy. In particular, Shaw and David Ferry are discussing what their alibis would be for November 22, 1963. And they're doing this in the hearing of a young man named Perry Russo, who was one of David Ferry's acolytes, perhaps, and is sitting there listening. And eventually, after, only after David Ferry died under mysterious circumstances. It's really not clear of what he died, but he died on February 22, 1967. And the following week, Perry Russo came forward and wanted to tell his story to the sheriff in Baton Rouge. And the sheriff's office in Baton Rouge didn't want to hear it. And they said, go to the newspapers. And so Perry Russo went to a Baton Rouge newspaper and told about David Ferry. He didn't talk about Shaw at that moment, but he did talk about Ferry. And Garrison's investigators in New Orleans read the newspaper, and Mumu Chambra, who was one of Garrison's people, drove up to Baton Rouge the next day to talk to Perry Russo. And it was then, on that Saturday, that Perry Russo told Andrew Chambra about the party at David Ferry's in which Ferry and Clay Shaw discussed what their alibis would be for the day of the assassination. These alibis turned out to be true. David Ferry was in Hammond at Southeast Louisiana University, and Clay Shaw was in San Francisco during the assassination. So both of them found uh, it, it turned out to be true. Garrison immediately had Perry Russo take sodium pentothal to see if he was telling the truth. Really, they did that. They knew the evidence, and they did that just to check. And Russo said the same things. Before the sodium pentothal test, and this was something that I discovered, Perry Russo sat before a police artist, and he described the people that he saw at David Ferry's apartment. In particular, he described the man who called himself Clem Bertrand, and Clay Bertrand was the alias of Clay Shaw. And as Perry Russo described this person, the artist, who was a police officer, drew the picture, and it turned out to be an exact likeness of Clay Shaw. Now, you might wonder whether that police artist who has come forward here for the first time was telling the truth. But the fact that he turns out to be the person to whom my book is dedicated, a New Orleans police officer who first walked the beat on Bourbon Street, later was part of New Orleans Police Intelligence, still later was one of the members of Team 3, the Louisiana investigators who worked for the United States for the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and a police officer of impeccable record named Robert Burris. 
And Robert Buras, his ambition in life was to be an artist, but because he grew up in the projects and was poor and his dad was an alcoholic and he had nothing, he had to become a policeman. But it wasn't what he, uh, he actually wanted to be an artist. And so he is the person who drew that likeness of Clay Shaw. Well, Joan, this is incredibly important, and, and you have a, a chapter in your book called An Operative in Action, which details the intelligence role of Clay Shaw. And in it, you quote Clay Shaw at a press conference on March 2nd of 1967, the day after Jim Garrison arrested him, that Clay Shaw said explicitly, I did not know Harvey Lee Oswald, referring to Lee Harvey Oswald, and that he had never met Mr. Dave Ferry. And here you have tied them all together. Not only that, you go into Shaw's recruiting of Guy Bannister, of whom I'd like you to speak also, in a program called, is it Kenchant? QK Enchant. Q, it's Q-K-E-N-C-H-A-N-T. And then also you uncovered that Clay Shaw was not just a CIA employee, that he was particularly an agent, and you have John Witten, a longtime officer in clandestine services, in charge of reviewing counterintelligence operations. You have him discussing, actually, the files of Clay Shaw, even though these files were purged. And if I can read from your book, on page 143, it says, Far from being a mere asset for the domestic contact service, Clay Shaw was a CIA operative. His records resided with counterintelligence. Arthur Dooley of the Counterintelligence Research and Analysis Staff, headed by Raymond Roker, nicknamed The Rock, by Chief James Angleton. One day telephoned John P. Dempsey, the Director of Research. Dooley revealed how well aware he was of Clay Laverne Shaw. He did not bother with the fantasy of attaching an ending date to Clay Shaw's counterintelligence service. Remarkable, remarkable research. Joan, with respect to the Central Intelligence Agency high-level role of Clay Shaw over a substantial period of time, we also have the evidence concerning the CIA history of Lee Harvey Oswald at Atsugi Air Force Base and with his false defection to the Soviet Union and with his subsequent return, run by the CIA, FBI, and so on. Well, let me just mention one point, because you said so many things. We have to get back to who Guy Bannister was as well. But one of the points that I think is worth making is that Fair Play for Cuba itself was heavily infiltrated by the CIA, and in particular was a pro project of the propaganda specialist David Atlee Phillips. So it was no accident that Oswald was standing there on Canal Street and also in front of the International Trademark, where Clay Shaw were uh, giving out his leaflets for Fair Play for Cuba. And I also want to mention that although it was known, I think I prove without any doubt that Oswald was working for more than one agency, for working for United States Customs, and those files, let me add right here, have not been opened, although it would seem that at the National Archives we have all the records of the Church Committee and the House Select Committee on Assassinations. In fact, all of the records at the Church Committee which show that Oswald 
was working closely with U.S. Customs still remain sealed to this day. However, the summaries exist, and that's where I got the information because the summaries of those interviews can be found at the National Archives. By agencies, you're referring to the CIA, the FBI, and the U.S. Customs. Now, yes, and yes, Amaya. Now, as far as the FBI is concerned, the Warren Commission knew about that, and that was how Jim Garrison started on his investigation. And I think it's interesting to mention that throughout his life, including in his books, Garrison always said that it was Russell Long, Senator Russell Long, who was the son of the uh, Huey Long, who first got him on to investigating the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And this wasn't true at all. In fact, the person who inspired Jim Garrison, and Garrison kept this secret because he didn't want to blow his cover, was Louisiana Representative Hale Boggs. Hale Boggs was a member of the Warren Commission, and Hale Boggs was present during one of the closed sessions of the Warren Commission at which FBI records of Lee Harvey Oswald were discussed. And Alan Dulles was also on the Warren Commission, uh, the CIA director whom John F. Kennedy had fired, had told all the Warren Commissioners that this, none of this must ever leave the room. And, of course, the first thing that Hale Boggs did was to tell Jim Garrison about Oswald's connection to the FBI. And hearing that, Garrison realized that the investigation that he had begun in 1963 when he questioned David Ferry during the weekend of the assassination turned out to be something that the Warren Commission had not investigated at all and that he really should resume his investigation. One of the people whom I interviewed at great length was the FBI clerk, William Walter. And I think he's, he's one of the most important witnesses. He was deposed before the House Select Committee, who tried to discredit him at every turn. And I think that William Walter stood up well under that questioning. And I think he's an entirely credible witness. William Walter was a young Tulane student in 1963. And during the summer, when Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested on Canal Street for a skirmish that he had with members of a Cuban organization called DRE, which was the Directorate of Students, Oswald was arrested and taken to jail where he was questioned by Lieutenant Francis Martello. And Oswald told Lieutenant Martello, call the FBI and tell them that you have Lee Harvey Oswald here. Actually, I think he said Lee Oswald. Now, Martello never talked about this, and he only did so many, many years later in the 1990s. Well, well, Martello telephoned the FBI. The person who answered the telephone was William Walter. And William Walter, it was... I guess late at night, maybe on the weekend, and there was only one FBI agent present. His name was John Quigley, and Quigley immediately told Walter to see if they had any files on Lee Harvey Oswald. And, of course, the place was filled with files, including a file that was in the sealed filing cabinet of the special agent in charge down there. And there it became clear that Lee Harvey Oswald was part of FBI operations in New Orleans. This was a security file that was kept in a locked cabinet. There were also informant files. And on that, on the jacket of Lee Harvey Oswald's security file was the name of a very well-known FBI agent down there in New Orleans called Warren DeBruys, who until this day, and I've spoken to him maybe two months ago, denies that he ever knew Oswald. Although he did say to me something that he never said before. What he said was, you know, I wouldn't be a very intelligent man if I never changed my mind. And I'll take that as an admission by Warren DeBruys, because otherwise he was the toughest. Although he was not the special agent in charge, he was the toughest of the FBI agents down there. Anyway, there's Oswald's relationship with the FBI spelled out beyond a doubt. The CIA records do not reveal that Oswald was part of the false defector program that went into the Soviet Union, but it was pretty clear that he was. All the evidence points to that. 
let's take a moment to look at the intelligence relationships here. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee at the time was a one-person operation, Lee Harvey Oswald, but it was operating out of a particular location. And it was a building that had offices of somebody named Guy Bannister, which was a clearinghouse for intelligence operations. You have here a convergence of Guy Bannister, Lee Harvey Oswald, David Ferry, Clay Shaw, and in various circumstances, Jack Ruby as well. The convergence of the central figures in the planning and implementation of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Would you expand upon your own documentation of this with witnesses and documents? Well, first, I think we have to tell the audience who Guy Bannister was. Guy Bannister had been the special agent in charge of the FBI office in Chicago, which, of course, was uh, the mafia stronghold. He came to New Orleans, where as a cover, he joined the police department and became, and I can't recall his exact title, but he got into a drunken rage once in a bar and he took out his gun and whatnot, and he was fired from the police department. He ran what was supposedly a detective agency at 531 Lafayette Street. And the side entrance of that building, now the United States Courthouse at 500 Camp Street, but the side entrance is 544 Camp Street. And Lee Harvey Oswald stamped 544 Camp Street on some of the leaflets that he gave out in the, for Fair Play for Cuba. And this created quite a disturbance. When Jim Garrison started his investigation, he took note of that. And it was Garrison sitting in his office one day with several Cubans who were helping him who said, wait a minute, what number camp? What number camp? And we have this on tape because the district attorney's office taped that session. And then Garrison realized that Oswald actually was operating out of the offices of Guy Bannister. Guy Bannister was in close touch with the FBI, with the CIA. He sent uh, jeeps to Cuba. He was involved in anti-Castro activities. He was involved in collecting ammunition for an invasion of Cuba. He was involved in supplying money from the CIA to the training camps, training Cuban exiles to invade Cuba north of Lake Pontchartrain. All these names are so familiar now, aren't they? And Oswald had an office on the second floor of Bannister's office. And Bannister also had files on everybody, anti-communist files. And one of the young men who was a spy for Bannister and infiltrating left-wing organizations noticed Oswald on the street, noticed first Oswald in Bannister's office, then noticed Oswald in the street giving out pro-Castro leaflets. And he said, well, you know, what, what's going on here? And Bannister said, and I think Garrison did discover that, that well, he's one of us. Don't worry about him. Uh, he's one of us. So it's fairly clear that Oswald was connected with these agencies. Bannister was connected with these agencies. Both were connected with the plots that the CIA had been running to murder Fidel Castro. I don't know if that how, how far we should go with that. Now, Garrison began his investigation with a character, a New Orleans character named Jack Martin. And Jack Martin was working part-time with Guy Bannister. Jack Martin, therefore, knew David Ferry, and he knew that Oswald was seen in Guy Bannister's office. And so when President Kennedy was assassinated, Jack Martin started telling everyone in New Orleans, wait a minute, David Ferry, who was a resident here in New Orleans, knew Lee Harvey Oswald, the killer of President Kennedy, very well. 
And that started Jim Garrison's investigation in 1963. Now, when Garrison resumed his investigation in 1966 and 1967, one of the first people he called in was Jack Martin. And I think if the people who have seen the movie JFK, they'll remember Jack Martin was played by Jack Lemmon, and they might remember the scene in which Guy Bannister pistol whips Jack Martin for something, uh, for actually for stealing a file from his office, which turns out to have been true and may very well have been the Lee Harvey Oswald file that Guy Bannister had kept. One of the discoveries that I made, and I want to give thanks to one of the people who helped me find these documents, whose name is Malcolm Blunt and who lives in England, one of the documents that I found was that document in which Bannister is recruited by QK and Chant. Now, QK and Chant was a CIA project, and it permitted a CIA asset or employee to recruit other people who were not part of the CIA for CIA projects. Many people who have defended Clay Shaw have said, oh, well, QK and Chant was just something about debriefing people, debriefing businessmen, and that really isn't true. It was a project that involved CIA operatives who were given the authority to recruit people who were not part of the agency. Well, Joan, you have August 1960 that Shaw is recruiting a guy Bannister. And you write, a recently uncovered secret CIA document reveals that Guy Bannister Associates was of interest to the agency for Q enchant purpose. Let me interrupt you a minute, Meyer. I forgot to mention it's there's so much material to cover, and that is that it, it required some effort to prove that Clay Shaw knew Guy Bannister, that these were people were part of the same operation. Now I have a witness named Alan Campbell who worked for Guy Bannister who told me that of course, Guy Bannister used to meet with Clay Shaw frequently, but the significance of that document is if Guy Bannister were in fact recruited for QK and Chant, well, the only member of QK and Chant in New Orleans was Clay Shaw. So there we have the connection between Guy Bannister and Clay Shaw confirmed by a second, well, by a document itself. Today, we're speaking with author Joan Mellon, investigator Joan Mellon, who has prepared the most incredible, compelling book, A Farewell to Justice, Jim Garrison, JFK's Assassination, and the Case That Should Have Changed History. This is the first interview with Joan for the release of her book. WBAI is very fortunate today to have Joan with us here in the studio. Thank you for listening to episode 169 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. <laughs>